best solutions are the ones that are flexible. Um, you know, and I don't mean to be send like a broken record, but these are the things that I, you know, I believe is that is the ones that are flexible that enable someone to customize. I have always found to be the most, the most powerful to use. Hello, and welcome back to ZapChat, the show where we zap it and chat it. I'm Richard Mones, and today we are joined by our very own Rob Davis. Currently, Rob is an implementation manager at Zaptic, but among some of his previous roles, he was a process engineer at Gallo Winery, the largest winery in the world by volume. In this episode, we're going to talk about flexibility and agility in frontline technology. We're going to talk about the importance of continuous improvement, why we should adopt digital solutions, how to build value for operators and digitization, and how do we embrace innovation in the manufacturing world. What does an ideal digital world look like? Well, let's find out. So today I'm with somebody that ever since we started ZapChat, I've been wanting to interview this whole time. And since that time as well, I'm delighted to say that he's also come to join us at Zaptic. So I'm really excited to introduce today's guest. Um, and I'm joined today by Robert Davies. Rob, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? You know, how did you start and how did you end up there? Absolutely. So I went to school at Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo and was an industrial engineer. I graduated there and I actually started at ENJ Gala Winery and was there about 11 years. I started in a group called Lean Six Sigma. I was mostly going through continuous improvement, then did a rotation through operations and ultimately ended up in process engineering, mainly working on big improvement type projects, anywhere from wastewater facilities to big installations of equipment to labor projects, digitization, a lot of those. So really rolling out lots of different type of improvement projects for the winery. That's great. Yeah. And then recently I got the opportunity to join Zaptic. Um, we actually got the, the opportunity to use Zaptic when, at my uh, old position and was excited to join the company. And we were definitely excited to have you. I'd, I'd love to know from your experience working at you have the largest winery in the world by volume, if I've got that right. Um, yep. Yeah. Walk us through, how do you make wine at that kind of scale? If you're listening or not familiar with a wine process, at a high level, walk us through it. How do you make wine at that kind of level? Oh, it's big, you know. So the facility I worked at, we would actually crush somewhere between 500 and 600,000 tons in a harvest. And this is a wow. big, big facility. When I told people I worked for a winery, I like to let them think that I work in rolling hills and walking around violence, but... It's really a factory. It was really, you know, turning and burning, trying to get that product in, especially during harvest. Because during harvest, the clock is running. You only have so much time to get everything in through the door. So when harvest starts, usually we would get in a lot of seasonals because the facility really starts ramping up right during that harvest time, which is about three months. And then processing that wine, will take it in through the door, have to ferment it and pull it off of solids. And doing that, we would have to do it in really, really big batches. You know, you're talking in, in the millions or 600,000s and you would be running multiple tanks throughout the day. And it, it's really a controlled chaos in terms of there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of people all trying to work towards the same goal. So managing that complexity was always actually really fun. Yeah, I bet. How did you manage for large number of seasonals? Because so much of a winemaking business is seasonal. And I know that the... Um, was about 60, 70% of the workforce during harvest or, you know, new that year. Can you talk us a little bit about how you manage that workforce? Absolutely. Yeah, that was, uh, 
coincidentally, one of my big projects while I was there. So managing seasonals is really difficult. And especially recently, because we really struggled to get seasonals in through the door, especially really qualified, really engaged seasonals. So every single year, it'd be really, really difficult for the operations team to manage all of these different seasonals with different levels of education, different levels of engagement. And how do you make sure that everybody is kind of rowing in the same direction? That was always a really big issue and kind of hurdle for the operations team. One of my big projects was what we called labor assist. And labor assist was all around trying to bring down the amount of labor that we needed simply because we couldn't get it. So we, we kept going in through harvest and asking our operations team to be doing things that they really couldn't do with the amount of labor that they had. So what we wanted to do is bring down the amount of labor that we needed in order that we can execute harvest correctly. We did this through lots of different variety of, of projects, anywhere from the simple providing different tools and providing different new processes to actually what a large part of what we did is we implemented Zaptic. We in-house created a system that would track the amount of labor that was spent throughout harvest, the amount of tasks that each individual and each team and kind of track the efficiency. And that way it really actually provided our operations team a way to set expectations. And they were able to see throughout all of their seasonals where the gaps were lying and where we needed to get better in and then create countermeasures in order to execute. That's really great. Do you feel like you had the support you needed from the organization to develop change? Because this is something that I've observed, you know, having been privileged to work with many different manufacturers. You know, EJ Gallo especially has great people and invests a lot in them. So do you feel like you did have a time to work on that kind of project and who supported you in that in terms of roles? Oh, absolutely. Yes. So very much supported throughout that entire project. It was a very high level project in terms of there was a lot of push to get it done because it was almost a requirement. Because like I said, we really just didn't have the labor. So it was almost like we're going to have to do this no matter what. Mm. And it was really a project that we just wanted to get done in order to be as successful as we could be. So in terms of support, yeah, everywhere up the chain from leadership all the way down and all the way down, especially for the team members on the floor, I will say the project was successful because the team members were engaged and it was very much a lot of time spent on the floor, spending long hours on graveyard, on swing shift and standing with operators, working with them on digital systems or tools that we're working out, learning about them understanding what their pains are so then that way we can help them and we can solve this problem all together. That's really cool. I've been a big advocate for manufacturing ever since I started working in the industry because I find that you know, people in manufacturing are so willing to work hard to solve problems and work together. I think mean, Ian J. Gallo is on another level still. I'd love to get your impression from coming from manufacturing now into Zavtec, a software company, how are we doing things differently and how are we doing things the same? Because I think we've probably got more in common than that separates us. But there's a lot I think the software industry can learn from the manufacturing industry because they've just been doing it for longer. Yeah. So the manufacturing industry, really, there is so many moving parts that it's gotten to a point to where I think, like you said, it becomes a well-oiled machine, right? There is, at least from a winery aspect, you have your winemaking team that's trying to make sure your quality hits. You have a quality team that's trying to make sure that the product is safe. 
Um, you have your operations team, engineering, you have all of these parts and all of these different roles that everybody needs to execute on a daily basis. You have very pointed meetings to fall, to align on specific things and execute against it. As you mentioned, I think because manufacturing has gotten to this point to where there's so much, call it continuous improvement over the years, that these kind of meetings have gotten really down pat. You know, if you go into either, either other facilities, which I have been recently, you see how well the processes are starting to work together. And that really comes from just years and years and years of work on those processes to make sure that they're all working together. So I think that I was very impressed, at least throughout my career within manufacturing. And I do think that there is probably some, you know, the, the uh, tech side, I do think there is maybe some opportunity there. But I will say I have been impressed in my short career with a, with a tech company now that there are, you know, the processes are different. Uh, so you don't necessarily need a, call it daily meeting for a tactical solution to a problem that you're experiencing on the floor. But you do need more, call it strategic meetings, which I think kind of the melding of those two processes and that kind of continuous improvement, I think will sooner or later be really good for both sides in terms of trying to upgrade your processes as best as you can. Absolutely. There's so many people um, you're working in software engineering teams who don't realize that, you know, Scrum, Agile, these are manufacturing methodologies. That's where they started. And if you go back to, you know, like, I was going to say the source material, but that's probably overstating it. But, you know, the Lean Startup by Eric Weiss, you know, full-on references for Toyota production system as being, you know, the main inspiration for that. And I know there's been a lot of other similar thinking as well. So if we take that analogy a little bit further, you know, our engineering team, they do do daily stand-ups. They do do weekly retros. This is exactly what you see on the production floor. And, you know, if you do that for long enough, that's when you start to trend towards perfection. So continuous improvement is a really exciting topic and it's something that manufacturing does really well. Do you have any advice for people listening about how they can implement and improve their continuous improvement program? Absolutely. So... And I, I like that you brought up Agile um, and also another uh, methodology we were, I was using towards the end of my career within a manufacturing facility was what we call design thinking. What I've noticed over the years is projects, call it the old school projects, they're very, very big. They're very slow implementations. There's what I would call focus on planning, uh, meaning you would say, hey, I want to upgrade this system. Okay, let's get some very, very smart people. Let's put them into a room. We're going to sit in this room for six months while we plan out how we're going to install this project. Um, you might come up with a really, really, really good plan, but you might implement it. And usually I'll tell you any project I have ever implemented, I've never implemented something and have it be perfect the first time out. It just does not happen. As much as we want it to happen, it won't happen. Um, and so what I found over the past, call it a few years, is... There's all of these kind of ideologies that are focused more on action. Um, so, for instance, we're talking um, agile design thinking. It's no longer, hey, let's, you know, spend six months in a conference room whiteboarding something. It's, hey, let's come up with an idea of how fast we can do this. Let's come out with the smallest thing that we can do to implement quickly. And by doing that, you do a lot of different things. First, uh, from a manufacturing standpoint, you build engagement because I will tell you the people on the floor, they get really, really tired when they keep hearing, Hey, it's coming. You know, I have this, you know, this, this improvement project is coming. You're going to get it. 
they get really tired. MES is six months away and always will be, right? Exactly, exactly. And and they keep hearing that. And so by by doing something little, they, they it gets them excited. It, you know, it gets them excited. They want to work more. They want to see more. Also, and like I said, I haven't had something roll out and not change it. And I've come to the understanding that anything we do, I think we need to get comfortable that it's going to change. Meaning as much as we might like a system or a piece of equipment that we install, we get to be, be aware that we're going to learn by doing. So meaning we're going to learn as we're rolling it out, we're going to find out exactly how valuable this is to the floor, how to make it more valuable as we're going out there by implementing it. Do you find that when you're doing that, you're rolling something out that you admit isn't perfect? How do you communicate that to a floor? And do you risk losing engagement if you roll something out that isn't ready yet? So, and I will clarify, I would not say not ready. It's important to have some idea, you know, a general idea of what the plan is. I think what happens though, is we get very, very concerned about every single little detail. Um, and I will tell you the people on the floor, they will find a problem no matter how much time you spend on it and you will have a problem and you're going to see it on the floor. Also, I'll say if you're up front with them and you say, Hey, we're going to roll this out. We're going to test this. I've been gotten nothing but engagement from the team. Cause then it gives them the ability to say, Hey, you know, this isn't the final end all be all I can change it. So they get excited about it yeah. and they say, okay, well, let's do this. Let's do that. Let's do this. And then it builds almost this, which actually one of the reasons I had so much fun in it, it builds this thing up. Like everybody gets creative about it. Everybody gets excited and says, Hey, what if we, can we try this? Can we try that? And then it ends up being this fun project that everybody's working on. Yeah, that's really cool. There's a counter movement in software engineering because uh, the minimum viable product really took off when like a lean thinking came in. Um, but then you ended up sort of deploying, and we were definitely guilty of this, just deploying things that didn't work. Yeah, it said, oh, that would do, let's get it out the door. Um, and there's this counter movement now, which we really buy into of a minimum quality product. Uh, what is the minimum amount of work you can deliver something that is still quality? And I think manufacturing probably never lost that because you have to deliver a quality product and there's so many quality processes. And I think that might be an example where the software industry can still learn quite a lot from manufacturing. Like how do you remain agile when you also, you know, if you don't get wine out the door, we're talking, you know, it's going to cost you millions and millions of dollars every day. How do you innovate in an environment that has such a low tolerance for mistakes? Great question. It, and it, I will tell you first, it's, it's hard. It's difficult, um, especially for somebody like me, somebody like me that was doing improvement projects, getting the wine out through the door, getting the wine in and getting the wine out. That's what they want, need to get done. And it should be right. Cause that's, that's what keeping the company moving. If you don't have that. We're going to fail. So what you need to do in terms of CI, in terms of all of these improvement type projects to move forward is really engage them. A lot of times that means it's more work on your side. Because you need to have the understanding that, hey, these people on the floor, their first priority should be, is, and should be to process what they need to get processed throughout that shift. So by working with them, engaging with them, talking to them, like I was saying, going on the grave shift and sitting with tech ops and understanding what their problems are, and then going back and doing all of the work yourself and then showing them and then getting feedback and kind of that whole PDCA process. Um, is really important in, 
in trying to build continuous improvement while you're still maintaining a quality product. That's really cool. Do you feel like um, since moving into Zapta, you've had the opportunity to sort of look in through the window at sort of many different manufacturing environments? So, you know, you've gone deep in one with E&J Gallo, and now you're going shallow in many. What are the commonalities? Do you think, is there more opportunity um, for synergy between these manufacturers or are they all different? Like, how do you view one manufacturer to the next? Yeah, there there definitely is differences between manufacturing facilities. And I have seen that in just the processes for the few manufacturing facilities I've been touring now and looking back at, at ENJ Gallo, as well as my time at Gallo touring other facilities. Everybody has a little bit different way of processing their own material. And some are more uh, mature in their, both their digital as well as their kind of process journey. And some may be lagging behind. And sometimes that's a focus on CI, on manufacturing, on understanding that the importance of doing what we're doing. Well, you said something really interesting there, like the importance of what we're doing. Uh, why is it important? Like, why do you think it's important to adopt digital solutions in today's day and age? Yeah, actually, I can, what I could do, I'll go back to the project I was talking about earlier. So all around labor. So what I found when we were rolling out this labor project is we were rolling out all of these solutions. And I got to a point to where I just didn't have anything further I can do. I didn't have any small tools or small installations that I could do to reduce the amount of labor we need. And what I found is constantly I'm hitting a wall of, I need some type of digital system. I need some type of way to measure what we currently have, to understand what we currently have, to countermeasure against it, to see the reasons why we're spending maybe a lot of labor in certain areas and be able to tactically execute countermeasures against those. I kept finding that a digital system really, even though maybe the digital system itself might not solve my labor uh, hurdle, yes, but it actually enabled everything. So, and by doing that, we implemented a labor management system on the floor. We are able to see, hey, you know, we're spending a lot of time in these areas. Okay, now I understand that. Now I can go implement a project or focus in this area and get better in that area. So it really, digital systems, while they might be, you might be as simple as digitizing a piece of paper, it actually enables us to get so much data, so much understanding, so much feedback that we can then implement solutions very quickly and uh, responsibly and be able to fix a lot of our problems as we're going about it. So let me ask you a question then. Decentralized development of solutions, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Ooh, that's a great question, Richard. That is so. Um, All the IT directors listening are, are leaning in on the edge of their seat. I, I know, and they're probably not going to like what they hear. Um, so <laughs> uh, I will say I'm a little bit of a contrarian in terms of what I think is our ideal. In my ideal digital world in manufacturing, an operator could build his own digitization. A person on the floor could come in every day and say, you know, I want to see these instruments. I want to collect this information. I want to visualize it in this way. And he's the one who's on his labeler, his filler, his, his box maker. He's the one who's actually deciding this is what I want to see and when I want to see it. And 
Now, I don't think it's that much of a jump because if you look right now, you know, if you take 50,000 people, I bet you if you look what their digital device in their phone is, I bet you not a single mm-hmm. one is the exact same. Every single one is configured yeah. a little bit differently. Every single one is a little bit, you know, you might have a different device. You might have, you know, an iPhone. But if you have an iPhone, then what apps do you have? What arrangement of apps do you have? How do you see it? And the thing is, and I think what we, we lose to see sometimes is, in my opinion, not one's better than the other. Yeah. Sometimes they're exactly the same. How I configure my iPhone might not be as better than how you configure yours because we're different people. You know, we view the world differently. So like I was saying, in my ideal world, it would be absolutely awesome if they could create what they want to see because they're the ones, they have their own personal experience. They have, they've seen it on the floor and they could see their own visualizations and build them. Now, getting to that is obviously, you know, you can't necessarily have every single operator become a uh, development engineer, but I think what we can do is we can get closer to that. We can bring that digitization down to them in terms of steps removed from that operator. So right now, if you look and you implement something on the floor from the operator to the person who's doing the mouse clicks of creating that digitization, probably about five different people. And that's, to me, that is almost unacceptable because what happens when you do that is you lose what the actual mission is. You lose what the changes are. You lose the understanding of why you're doing what you're doing. And so if we can bring those changes, that digitization down to, you know, one, two steps away from where that operator is, you can really build value for that operator. It's a really interesting way of looking at it. Now I will say, yeah, I, well, and I really found this when we were rolling out that thing. I found this, but at least I came to this realization when I, when we were working with the team on the floor and we were making changes one step away <laughs> and seeing the value that that brought was just absolutely amazing. The, the drawback and, and you brought up it. So I got to bring up, I, I got to mention <laughs> it because everybody that works in it is probably grabbing their, their chair right now, wanting to scream governance. Oh, I think they've already stopped listening, Which, but. Yeah, that's for those yeah, that are that's, still remaining. You're probably right. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. Which, which I get. Um, so usually we want to say governance, and and I agree. So and I, well, let me say it this way: I read a book a long, long time ago called "Why Nations Fail," and great book. The book was all centered around it was a really big book, lots of information, but there was one key piece that always kind of resonated with me. And that was that nations are successful based on their ability to let their citizens be successful and really get out of their way and make sure that they are free to do what they can do and be successful. So I kind of see governance in that same way. I mean, government governance. It's, it's not that governance should tell people what to do. It's that they should think, how can I make sure that that person can succeed while still making sure we were safe, we're secure with the product, we're doing what's necessary, but we should be focused on how making sure that they can do the things that they need to do. Um, so for instance, what a lot of times what I'll hear is um, reasons we need governance is because of the 
metric side. We want to be able to roll up metrics in, into one dashboard so we can see it across all of our different sites. And, and that's the reason. Well, in my opinion, let's focus on that and, and solve that as a pointed solution. Let's not mm. tell everybody you have to have these metrics in order to uh, create your digitization. Let's, let's figure out a way that we can work with each site and pull each number and come up with Let's come up with a, a clever way of solving that problem that's not causing pain down the chain. That's interesting. Yeah, I really like that. If I could take a stab at alienating the rest of the listeners that we have, um, you know, equally, I think the, um, you know, the metaphor of a nation state is quite interesting because you've also got laws and you've got uh, standards, protocols, organizations. And that's exactly how I see code governance as well. And you alluded to it there is let's build what is the framework? What are the bounds of what you're allowed to do? And then within that, you can run with it. And yeah, I think I think there's probably very few um, you know, IT and corporate directors who want to restrict innovation. I don't think that's generally what they want to do, but actually trying to enable innovation while also then allowing them to do their jobs is a really, really difficult thing. So I liked what you were saying around, let's just look at, if you want to do central reporting, great. You know, that's a project. Let's not build every single system around that goal. Let's just work out how we can how we can do that. Can you talk a little bit more about how you might allow innovation within an organization while also still being able to do a central function? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so let's say we did have some type of in-house development of some digital system. And I get my ideal world where somebody on the operator floor is able to create their digitization as they're going. And everybody in the floor is being able to creatively track all of their personal metrics, be able to see all, all of that information, and we're able to succeed that way. Now, those are, call it mini projects. Those are creating digitalizations for each one of those little areas. Now, if let's say we needed roll-up metrics like we were talking about, that's when we bring in somebody like myself was years ago and say, okay, if we need to roll up metrics, let's come up with what data do we need? What do we, we, we sit down with no longer do we sit down with the operators. We get out of their way, let them do their thing. We sit down with our leadership and say, Hey, leadership, what do you want to see? Now you can still pull those numbers. You know, most everything right now is all digital, but let's cleverly come up with a way to make sure that we're still allowing that customization, that digitization, that creativity on that side, while still allowing us to be able to benchmark different areas, be able to benchmark different lines, different plants. As long as I think we focus on being able to do that while all understanding that the creative side is important, I think we can get there just by, you know, there's a lot of smart people. I think we can get there. Yeah, I love that. But definitely is a lot of smart people, especially in, in manufacturing. Do you think that IT solutions should be built from the ground up at site level or pushed out centrally? Or maybe it's not that binary. How do you think about that? Yeah. So from, I think, a central level makes sense as a starting point. To me, it makes sense to say a central team that has worked with multiple different sites to say, hey, here's some solutions that we would recommend doing. But manufacturing, it's complex. It's chaos. It's every, it's, <laughs> there are so many different moving parts, so much complexity that I don't think you can say, here's your one solution for all of your 20 sites. 
because each one of those sites has their own people, has their own people that think different things, has their own different equipment that might act a little bit differently. They have a different process that's going to be just a little bit different. That's really not going to align with the solution that we're rolling out. And if you constrict, then what ends up happening is, is we end up making this Frankenstein looking solution that's trying to be everything all at once. When really, if we just said, hey, we're aware that everybody is a little bit different. We want to build value for each individual site. We want to build value for the team on the floor. If we did that, then we could hit that solution and allow them to create those digitization while still providing exactly what we need. Yeah, that's really interesting. I see it as an example where technology hasn't really caught up with a theory or hadn't really caught up with a theory until recently because the traditional model of developing software is you you write code to solve specific problems. And this kind of platform approach where you're moving software more to be an enabler rather than a point solution, that's actually fairly, fairly new. And certainly in the manufacturing, you know, there are players out there, of course, we're from Zavdeg, we're going to talk about that. But there are others as well. I think the next generation of solutions is much more focused on giving you a platform and a tool rather than a solution to a specific point. So the solution development side of things, could you talk a little bit about how solutions can be built, you know, at a local level and what are the software and solutions that you've seen that really help you to do it? Yeah. Um, so from everything I've seen, the best solutions are the ones that are flexible. Um, you know, and I don't mean to be send like a broken record, but these are the things that I, you know, I believe is that it is mm -hmm. the ones that are flexible that enable someone to customize. I have always found to be the most, the most powerful to use. Not necessarily doesn't need to be best functioning. Doesn't need to have all of the bells and whistles. Doesn't need to have, you know, um, so, you know, AR or some attachment to drones or robots or AI. What it needs to do is allow me to build and quickly build what I need to build as fast as I can. Uh, I'll say, you know, now there's simple tools out there, call it, you know, your Microsoft Excels of the world. Look at that. That's something that's fairly simple. You know, if you go into it, it's fairly simple. You can customize whatever you want to do, but it can be super powerful because of the value that you put into it, because of what you can build. You can do really complex analysis and connecting it different data sets and doing this, all of this together in this one tool. And it's not doing it for you. It's allowing you to do it. I'll say that's the reason that I came to Zaptic. That's exactly the reason that gets me excited about Zaptic is because it is one of those tools. It's one of those tools that allows me to take an idea and create it into a reality. It doesn't necessarily say, hey, this is exactly what you need to do. This is exactly how you need to structure everything. It gives me a tool, gives me all of everything I need in order to build something that's valuable for what I need to do. And by doing that, the power I think is almost, it's fast because it can be built and you can build as much value, as much value as you get out of it is all about the value you put into it. And you mentioned Excel there. I think every, the amazing thing about Excel is I think every single person listening to this will have the exact same reaction. They love it and they hate it, right? Because you can just do so much, but you can also do so little. It's such such an interesting tool and definitely a forerunner in the category of, of, of business enablers, which I just find really exciting. It's really cool. Look, last question, because you mentioned it. 
AI, how do you see it affecting manufacturing and process operations? That one's tough. And I will say there are a lot of, call it, bigger solutions coming out there. I mean, you're talking AI, you're, like I mentioned, AR, robotics, all of these things are coming. I think from a pointed solutions, I think there are some, some really big opportunities. I think you, there might be able to be some very small things or maybe big things that these solutions can solve. What I think we in the industry get almost too excited though. I've seen, at least from what I have seen in the past, we see a cool new tool. We see cool <laughs> AR. We see something that we want to go and implement. And what ends up happening is you start focusing on trying to implement a solution rather than trying to fix a problem that you are trying to solve. And, and, it, and what ends up happening is, is I say, okay, in AR, I'm going to implement AR on my plant floor. Or I'm going to take AI and I need to implement AI because I believe that's the, where the world is going. But you don't necessarily look at what problem am I trying to solve with it? You don't say, you know, you don't say, hey, I have this problem on the floor that I need to solve. And I'm going to look at all of these different solutions along with, um, along with your AI in order to fix that problem. I'll give you an example just because this one makes me laugh from time to time. This, and I'll keep going back because it, it always ends up... Uh, a good example is, so when I started working on labor, when you start thinking about labor, the first thing you can you think of is you think robot, right? You think, oh, I'm going to solve this with robot or drones or something like that. And personally, and I'll, I'll say this happened to me, is I said, okay, I'm going to figure out robot. And I spent probably what? hundreds of hours. And then when I had a team, I started telling the team, spending hundreds of hours trying to figure out how we implement robot or how we do a drone, or how we do it. And it wasn't that that's not the correct way of going about it. I should be saying, what is the problem? And then backing yeah. into saying, okay, that is one of the solutions I look at. And if that solution is the best one, okay, let's move forward with it. But maybe it's not. Maybe it's not the best solution. Maybe I can solve this problem with, you know, somebody on a golf cart rather than a, a Roomba <laughs> going around. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. I love that. I think something that I, I've just heard you say time and time again is, is solution and it's problem and, you know, start with a problem, build with a solution and, you know, be open-minded as, as to what that is. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from your experience and it's been really interesting talking to you today. So Rob, thanks so much for coming on. You're certainly welcome anytime. Thank you, Richard. Wow. Are we lucky to have Rob and the team really enjoy working with him and his knowledge is fantastic. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe wherever you get this podcast, and I hope you join us again soon. 